0: Welcome to the TFO Football Podcast. I'm Josh Schneiderweiler, and I'll be guest hosting this episode today. I'm chatting with author Tony Evans about his new book, Two Tribes, Liverpool, Everton, and a City on the Brink, which comes out March twenty second. A little bit about Tony: he has written several books about Liverpool and was previously the football editor of the Times. He now is a regular contributor to ESPN FC and the Evening Standard. In this episode, he examines the dark days of the 1980s through the lens of Heisel and the 1985-1986 season. So we're talking hooliganism, TV blackouts, and how football reflected the political culture of the time. That, and so much more. But before I play the interview, don't forget to check out This Football Life, the show I normally host for. Last week's interview was with Kieran Dyer, and here at TIFO we're giving away 10 of his books away for free, So listen to that episode and hop on the TIFA website to see how you can win one of those books. So without further ado, enjoy my conversation with writer Tony Evans. I'm here in Pimlico in London with Tony Evans, uh, author of
1: the the new book, uh, Two Tribes, which is coming out in a couple weeks. Uh, Tony, how are you doing today?
2: Oh, I'm great, thank you. Snowy London—it's a, a fantastic place to be this time of year.
1: Yeah, you must be—you feel right at home, you know, with all that Liverpool weather coming coming with you here to London.
2: Well, the funny thing is, Liverpool doesn't get that much snow. Liverpool's a very windy city because you know it's a, you're on the sea, and the um, and and the big weather patterns kick over the Welsh mountains and dump on Manchester. Which, you know, it works for me. Um, <laughs> uh, but, like, Liverpool's not a cold city, and it's not really... A, it's not, not a snowy city, so London's a much colder place, believe it or not, even though it's in the south in the winter. It gets warmer in the summer. That's it.
1: A... Yeah, well, uh, let's get to your book, uh, Two Tribes, which I, I just f- uh, finished reading yesterday. Uh, really, really nice read. Tell me, uh, tell the audience, what, what's your book about?
2: Oh, thank you. It, 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 it's about, it's about, well... It's sort of about football. Football is um, football's involved in it. What it's about is the political situation in the mid-80s uh, in, in Margaret Thatcher's Britain and the way football was used as a weapon in the class war and... Um, And how Liverpool in particular became a a, a city which was under pressure politically, socially and economically. And almost an outsider city in the United Kingdom. And how the football clubs became a a flag bearers for for the city. And it's also about how football was living on the edge at the time, because it was after the Heisel disaster, which of course Liverpool fans were responsible for, and football was as um, low in people's estimations as it's ever been and at that point the game picked a fight with television so it wasn't even on television and in the course of a year how the the sport transformed from being almost a pariah in the country to being a a sort of a, a communal activity again and really it was the first steps on the road to the Premier League happened in that season. Everyone talks about Hillsborough's the the disaster that was the catalyst for the Premier League. But the real catalyst for the Premier League was Heisel, which is where this book starts, at, essentially at the final whistle at Heisel.
1: Well, let's start there at Heisel. Uh, can you kind of just describe for those of us like me who didn't live through it and are a little bit too young, what was it like in 1985 uh, before Heisel, and then right around that period and the kind of, uh, you know, describe, I mean, you were, uh, you were at Heisel, um, Yeah, yeah. Uh, and maybe a little bit of just your own personal experience from that. Well, day. the, the uh,
2: 1985 in particular was probably the most violent year. Uh, well, 1984 to 1985 was, was the most violent period in my life in not, from, not me partic- particularly, but for Britain, it was such a such a troubled year. You had um, you had uh, the the miners' strike, which divided the country completely. You had uh, riots all over the place: Hansworth, um, Brixton, uh, Tottenham. You know, you, you, you had trouble there every night. Northern Ireland was getting beamed on, into your living room on the televisions. You know, the st- horrible street violence, and uh, and so you're just in this world. And football was probably. Uh, you know, uh, football always has been a good gauge of the social temperature of this country. And and football was a really violent place. You know, you had um, Millwall rioting at Luton. Um, you, you, had, you had trouble everywhere. Uh, it, about four weeks before highs, Liverpool and Man United played in the FA Cup semi-final at Goodison. And, and it was, it was the, the most horrific violence I've ever seen. It was... It wasn't just, you know, everyone said, "Oh, it's a minority." It wasn't a minority of fans. It was the the majority of the fan bases, of both fan bases, were fighting each other and were using, you know, the most appalling weapons: Stanley knives, uh, golf balls with six inch nails hammered through them, Um, magnesium flares shot up close range, and it was horrible. And then at the end of the season came the Bradford fire, which of course wasn't hooliganism, but you know, it kind of. It it, it, it it was it, it seemed like the death knell for football uh, at, at Birmingham, St Andrews, when uh, Leeds were there to play Birmingham. A young lad, in Hambridge, was killed when a wall collapsed. And that turns out to be a shocking sort of portent of what was happening at Heisel. And Liverpool fans went to Heisel. We went to Heisel with the bad attitudes. We'd been in Rome the year before, and we'd beaten Rome, Roma, in the you know in their own backyard. But the way we were treated was just unbelievable. You know, we we were we were really brutally attacked on a, again a mass scale. Uh, there was only eight thousand Liverpool fans there. I mean, that's inconceivable now when you think of the travelling. Um, Hordes that go to Europe, but it, it, there's 8,000 Liverpool fans, and we were stabbed, beaten. Yeah, uh, me, me, mate's dad we, we came very close to dying after getting stabbed. You know, they were doing a, a pugciocarte with the, where they stab you in the backside or slash you backside because, um, the, the idea is they they get the, the attacking first. You can go and look it up, it's in it's you know, it's a, it's a real word, word and the proud of us in Rome, I still haven't forgiven them. Um, <laughs> and like and that. But and so everyone went to Heysel with a bad attitude. Well, not everyone, I mean, but the people that I associated with, people who took the ordinary trains, the people who drank in the American bar, the Yankees, we knew it, you know, and so we and it wasn't like we're gonna give give it to the Italians, but the attitude was no Italian will ever do that to me again. Yeah, a little so, salty. You were a little yeah, so yeah. So so a sort of sort of sort of sort and sort um, and you know there was there was the that, beer. There was this big myth went around Liverpool that like, Belgian beer was weaker than the beer we were drinking at home, and we're drinking (laughs) 3.8%, 3.8% bitter or even less, you know, 3.4% or 2.8% mild. go over there and everyone's on 5.2, 5.6 loopy juice, throwing it back as if, you know, and and about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, the the attitudes were just really, you know, really bad, ugly, drunken behaviour. I mean, not in in that you'd say was life-threatening, but just, Borish, horribly boorish behaviour, um, and then sort of in in the grounds, um, you know. So to, the the ground was falling apart. You know, you, you could literally. There are pictures of it. You could kick the outside wall, the breeze block, and the, you, there was people crawling in and holes that kicked, and um, the terraces were crumbling. About an hour before kickoff, where we were standing, uh, a crash barrier just collapsed in front of us and, you know, it was there. And then, I mean, people were just streaming into this neutral section next to us. And, uh, you know, I got over there, I had a look around. There was a bit of fighting, nothing you'd think was, nothing that was unusual for the time. You know, I was, I was wandering around, you know, just uh, looking. And then um, I got back into our section and then it became apparent something really bad had happened, but we couldn't tell where it had happened. We, we thought it was just normal sort of hooliganism. And, and then the... the the uh, Juventus ends. Mts out and come around attack attacking the Liverpool ends. Everyone went mad and you know the police officers clear it off and it took forever. You know you you got to like two hours after the, the scheduled kickoff and you go, oh, you know what's what's going on? They're going to cancel this the game? Is the game going
1: to happen? Yeah. And
2: then then they kicked off and everyone went oh it couldn't have been that bad because yeah. the plane and you know, and then they played and the game ended and. Um, and all the Juventus fans stormed on the pitch, and Platini danced around. And we go, oh well, couldn't have been that bad. <laughs> went went to get a uh, bus back to the station there, and on the bus we were on the um, just sitting there stalled in traffic as you have football matches. And this policeman come up, and open the uh, open the, the door from the outside, and threw in a tear gas canister. Thanks, mate. And we we, we were, you know so go, going back on the way to. Um, on the way to uh, the boat going to Ostends, I mean, we, you know, there was dogs and prodding us with machine guns and all that sort of thing. So, you know, obviously, think we, have, we haven't behaved very well here and they don't like us, they don't want us back sort of thing. And then um, I was on the, the the boat coming back when, and the BBC 6 o'clock news, I mean, mate woke me up from this really badly hungover semi-coma I was in and gave me a can of beer and said, like, you know, I said, I don't want any more beer. And he said, like, uh, you'll need it. And like uh, then that's when we went up and found out how many people, so many people had died. I mean, we didn't know uh, it was thirty nine at that point. It was, I think, the figure they were given at that point was forty two, and it was just, it was shock. And I think the 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 state of the state of shock w- w- was was the main thing at first, but the, there was also a great deal of denial going on, which uh, going into the book but i think part of the problem is liverpool had been under so much pressure and so, demonized so badly as a city by by the conservatives and by the thatcher government that we were used to being criticised uh, having the finger pointed at us and abused and we, we we sort of washed over us and and i think that's part of why there wasn't in some quarters enough responsibility taken for what happened to tisol
1: well, I, I want to get to that responsibility uh, because I, I interviewed Bruce Grobelar uh, last, uh, I want to say July or August or September, mm. and w- we spoke about Heisel. And, uh, you know, he, he uh, just like in your book, he talks about how he wanted to quit after. and mm. um, But that led to him going on this like fact-finding mission. Um, mm. And I just he told me and uh, like I'm not reporting this as fact at all uh, that, you know, he said that it wasn't just Liverpool fans and that it was actually perpetrated by a bunch of uh, fans of other clubs. And I was just curious, as you're one of the few people who can actually like answer this question for me, did you ever hear any other rumors that like there were other uh, other fans involved in this? Uh I mean...
2: Oh, the, the Liverpool chairman blamed Chelsea? You know, it was it was ridiculous. I'll tell you what, we were a very left-wing fan base. Uh, the, the National Front, the right-wing movements, they did very well recruitment around the grounds in the late 70s and early 80s. And again, I talk about this in the book. But in Liverpool, Liverpool Liverpool's a very socialist city, a very left-wing city. Most of the Liverpool fan base were left-wing and we supported... Overall, in general, the uh, the city council, which known as the militant city council, we supported them. This mythology that somehow right-wing elements infiltrated us and caused this trouble in Heisel, it's such an outrageous lie. Bruce, actually, you need a fact-finding mission when you go into anything Bruce had said, because um, he, he can be a little bit liberal with um, uh, uh, his Reminiscences that there was no way, if there would have been any right wingers there, anyone from any other teams, they would have been singled out. And I'll tell you what, there would have been more trouble with them than there actually was with uh, Italians. You know, it, it never happened. It was Liverpool fans. It was purely and solely Liverpool fans. It was drunken Liverpool fans. And when you look at the pictures, I mean Peter Hooton, who I was in the band The Farm with in the 80s, and, and Peter still carries on the bands and he's um, and um uh, d- does lots of work for supporters organisations. But Peter, I've, I've quoted him, and he's 100% right. When he saw the pictures that they were in all the papers, it was clear we knew all the people involved. We knew who they were. And you know what? Anyone who tries to throw the blame in any Anyone else's direction there it's outrageous like
1: and so so eventually uh you know after heisel happens margaret thatcher gets involved i mean today in this day and age i don't know that that would happen but you know it did back then and so do you think it was a little heavy-handed of her to get involved and and if so do you how do you think she should have handled it differently you
2: you know peter reed said it in the book uh the heisel ban wasn't about uh, football what it was about is Liverpool. Liverpool was the um, was the, the city which was most troublesome to Thatcher. This is a city that Margaret Thatcher's cabinet discussed uh, managed decline of at cabinet level. They're actually talking about a, a cabinet sitting there saying, right, let's withdraw resources for the, from this city so the people have to leave it and it'll be less trouble to us. And, uh, that's inconceivable. And what she did, as soon as it was Liverpool, boom, was right on it and used as a political uh, statement. She actually said, she said, you know, these people are intrinsically violent. Look at the records in industrial relations. So she was acquainting strikes with Heisel. And and essentially, she lumped us into this enemy within thing. Um, and, again, Peter Reed and Neville Southall were very, very good on this subject. And, you know, and, and essentially they said... And they, they, they were the ones who, in sport and terms... You know, and, and they've got perspective. They know it's the least of it. But in sporting terms, we're affected most by Heisel. Everton lost out because of it. They, they, they never complain about it. They say the bigger issues. People lost their lives. You know, <laughs> we weren't the victims, and they're very they're very clear about that. But what but what they say? This was an assault on working class culture. Football at the time was the biggest manifestation of working class culture in Britain, and Margaret Thatcher was out to destroy working-class culture and working-class unity. And this was another weapon that she used to destroy it. And also, it made attacking uh, the Milton Council, Liverpool City Council, which was the only one in the country that were resisting the extremes of Thatcherism. It made it easier to uh, blacken their name for the rest of the country.
1: Yeah, you, I mean, you You mentioned Everton uh, didn't really, I mean, they were the ones most affected by the ban, obviously mm. n- not by the, the event, but by the ban. And I'm quite shocked that they were, I mean, that, you know, they're equally devastated in the book, but they didn't seem outwardly angry at, I don't know, just the way that, how unfairly treated uh, they felt that they might have been. Uh, it, it was quite shocking uh, when I was reading it. Uh, was it quite shocking, uh, to you at the time and just, uh, that Everton kind of seemed to rise above, uh, uh, the ban. Well, I mean,
2: I think uh, the thing for them is they realised that bigger events had happened and and the debts. I think the the debts were a, a stunning thing to us all. We weren't expecting, you know, anything. Like you don't expect. You go to a football match. You go to a football match for fun. You know, it's it's it was great entertainment. Even in those dark days, in the stu- when when the stadiums were falling down and hooliganism was rampant. But you still had a great time at the match and you didn't expect people to die. And they understood that first and they understood that... It, it, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of people who actually went the games and and, um, and sort of experienced the way things went understood that it almost could have happened to anyone in that stadium. It didn't happen to anyone, it happened to us. And there are reasons why it happened to us and, and why we behaved that way. And we need to take the responsibility. But Everton understood, and Everton fans as well as Everton players understood that there there was not we were probably the least likely team for it to happen to, given our records in Europe, given our um, given our sort of left wing stance and given our sort of non-jingoistic fan base so they understood that so uh, they, they realized that the city overall was being demonized and they were being demonized as well not just you know it was any scousers and uh, any any liverpool uh, merseyside football team let's say and uh, they they were going to be demonized when well, they recognized that and so the the anger that has come from evertonians about heisel didn't come apart from a very few because you always get you know, sort of the, the extremists in anyway, didn't come until much later, I'd say almost a decade on. And Evertonians at the time understood that there was a bigger need for solidarity between the two sets of supporters, the two sets of players the uh, the the city overall and and they were very conscious of that I think that comes through particularly in what what the Everton players say I mean it's it's it, it, but for them it was a very difficult book to to, uh, to to help me with because it's not a year they want they remember with much affection for obvious reasons okay. but but they 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 were they were very good and they were very clear on the way they thought and the way there was no sense of self pity from them because they knew that uh, there were people who had lots more to uh, to feel sorry about because they'd lost their loved ones and they were very, very conscious that the the events at Heisel didn't just blacken Liverpool Football Club, it blackened everyone in the city.
1: Yeah, and uh, something else that really stood out uh, from the book is... The blackout. I mean, you just talk. Uh, you just talked about how uh, a little while ago about how it just dark the times were in in the mid '80s that live football didn't seem like a product that a t- television company could sell. And you know, if you polled a hundred people right now in the the media industry or the television industry, they would say that's probably the number one thing you can sell. Mm-hmm. So, can you kind of? take us back as to why it was such or thought of as such an unsellable product
2: well i mean people thought it it was a it was the game of the the lower classes i use a a quote in it from the sunday times i think what is there a slum game watched by slum people in slum stadiums well thanks sunday times yeah it's brilliant and and that's the way it was looked at there's a there's a a, a, i loved um uh, Mark Bright, when he was talking about what it was like to be a footballer in the early 80s he said oh you know you weren't on television he said so you know people didn't recognize you instantly He said and so you'd go out he said and you'd say to the people say what do you do for a living he said, oh, I'm a footballer and said recoil it's you know he said it wasn't just you know the fans it wasn't just hooliganism that people thought was you know gauche and ugly it was it was actually players themselves and he said he'd go out he said you know he'd be sort of Chatting up the young ladies, oh, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm an accountant. Can you imagine that now? You know, it's um and it 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 was the view of the game was completely skewed from where it is today. Uh the thing is, live football on television always sold. Um the 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 lesson from the NFL from back what 20 years earlier in the mid 60s was that live sport was you know brought viewers in and the the chairman and owners in 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 England w- refused to accept the the evidence and the logic behind it they thought it'd stop people coming through the gates well actually what was stopping people coming through the gates of the stadiums was the fact that they were all falling apart and you know what they all could have many grounds could have been like Bradford. You know, it's it's it, and it was that bad. Uh, many grounds, uh, you know, you could have seen walls collapsing like they did at Birmingham and like at Heisel. I, I was at um, I was at Walsall in eighty four um, in the League Cup when when Liverpool scored. The wall collapsed at the front. No one was badly hurt. but you know, it, it, it these things happened, and that's why people didn't go to football matches. But they still watched it on telly, and um, and it made great entertainment. And it's it's always funny to look at people like Ken Bates, who you know, sort of in the early two thousands when Chelsea was in you know a brand spanking new stadium, and the game was on television. He was talking about oh yeah, how we he helped create the, uh, the you know the Premier League and that. People like Bates were resistant football to the last football on television, to live football to the last possible minutes. They thought it was going to kill the game. They thought the thing that saved the game and bloated it into this this unseemly beast that we watch today is television. and And the logic was at that time by all these great local businessmen who thought they were really sharp is that no, this is going to kill us, and it was madness. It was stupid.
1: Yeah well I mean I still think it's absolutely madness this is my little lone crusade that uh only half the games in England are televised I it I mean I I left uh, the United States to come here to watch less football. It's it's quite shocking and it seems like uh, they uh, still haven't really fully embraced <laughs> live well, exactly, television. Exactly, anyway. exactly. You know,
2: it, it's ridiculous. It'll come. There, there will be a come. Uh, there will be a time when um, each game will have a separate slot and you'll be able to watch them all and I don't think we're that far away from it. Um, I think the uh, in this this. Present TV deal uh, when they're trying to sell the packages. I think they misjudged the packages uh, very, very badly. I think in the next deal, it, it, it's a rare misstep from Richard Scudamore. I think in the next deal they will address that, and we'll see almost every game live on Sally. I think from you know if you if you you can work through the slots and give each game an individual uh, slot from Thursday night through till Monday, easy enough. And and I think that'll. Happen
1: yeah I mean, we're talking about like five, six years down the road, but mm. I mean it, it, by that point, I don't think they'll have a choice um, no. <laughs> with how many competitors there I think you really see but let let's look on on uh, let's get to on the field uh works in the 1985 86 season. You had three main contenders, uh, or at least it so it appeared mm. at the beginning of the year. you had Liverpool, United and everton and United got out to that cracking start uh, with uh, Ron Atkinson's crew, uh, and it looked like they had the league sewn up. Uh, you know, we're talking about as they enter the new year, they're flying high, and you're a Liverpool fan, so you're close to the action. Did you did you think anyone had a chance?
2: Oh, was it, well, it, it, it was – you started off the season, and they went on that 10-game win and start in the league you know, well, that's not good. And then, uh, then they had a couple of draws. They got to game fifteen. I always remember we were away at Coventry, where we'd had some spotty results there over the years. I mean, I remember getting beaten four 0 there. It was, um, it was a very depressing day. And we 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 went to Coventry, and they were away at Sheffield's Sheffield Wednesday at Hillsborough, and um, and we were on the train going down. And we got all the papers, and the back of the mirror had the big headline: "Give it to them now." You know, and um you know, sort of runs, boys. You know, and, you know, sort of on the way to the title, and we were we were steaming, and we got to um we we, we got to Highfield Road, and we won two nil, and they got beat. At, at Hillsborough and there was at that moment you thought, you know what we're going to hunt them down, it's quite interesting because Ron, Ron was very good to me for the book and talked a lot about it and he, he was saying he was always conscious that they, they you know, they couldn't maintain the, the the good start but the most interesting person about them was Steve Nichol, who was brilliant uh, one, one of the most clear thinking football minds I've ever dealt with and Steve said you know what, he said that there was a lot of players at United who who liked the uh, all the all the trappings of being a professional footballer, all the success of being a professional footballer, but weren't willing to put in the effort? And he said, like they were like they were like ten year olds who dream of being you know, footballers. He said they, they he knew uh, at Anfield that they had people who put in the effort. And he said they knew even when United looked to be going off into the distance that the, they'd haul them back, and they knew that the major the Major threat was Everton. and um, the uh, the, so there was um, United's drop off after Christmas is truly stunning. They had loads of injuries, um, but even so, um, it was, I mean, injuries to Brian Robson, who was the best English midfielder of his generation, um, and you know, sort it, of it, it, it's probably in the top five of all. English midfielders, certainly that I've seen, um, was, a, was 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 massive to them. Um, they tried they tried to get Lineker, uh before the season, and uh, the United Borden wouldn't give run the money. He had to sell players first, and that I think that 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 was a, a massive miss.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and of course he ended up on Everton, uh, mm. who stormed in the second half of the season and looked like they were going to win the title, and then they they had a. Collapse of their own, uh, which would—I mean—it would have given them three straight uh, league titles. Uh,
2: the, that, the Everton team, as um, of that period, is one of the great forgotten teams of English football. They were brilliant. You know what? That, that midfield, the central midfield in particular, Peter Reid and, and Bracewell were magnificent. Um, they you know they, 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 they could they could fight with you, they could play with you. They pressed, you know, like uh, you know so it's all, all the young kids today who look at you know uh, Klopp and Preston. Oh pressing's brilliant as if it was being invented. You know it's uh, this is probably about the fourth or fifth uh, the version of pressing I've seen in my life, you know, one of them. Yeah. So they pressed as well as any team i have ever pressed. And they, they had they had top class characters across the pitch. Uh, and and then Lineker, you know, a, a finisher which it was um it, it was it was lethal. You know, you just couldn't give him a second. You know, he'd lay around that last centre centre last defender's shoulder and he'd be gone and he was so quick. And they 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 won the league. They they won the league the year before and they were brilliant. They, they won the league at a canter. Um, and there's been lots of questions over why they didn't win it in the Gary Lineker season. And um I think a lot of people blame Lineker. Howard Kendall did and you know, and thought they had to change the game and they had to sit deeper. To give um, Lineker room, but to, yeah. to, by, to, by you know,
1: the way, let me just say he won Player of the Year, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> which and is t- quite remarkable. You were the fault, you know. He's been uh, kind of blamed. But. Scored
2: forty goals. None of the players on either side that I spoke to suggested for a moment that Lineker was anything else but brilliance for the for the teams. Uh, all the Everton players when I said to him, "Were you worse with Lineker? They were like, "Behave! How can you be worse with a player like that?" The Liverpool players were like, you know. Um, did you fear them more without Lineker? And they go, oh, no, 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 Lineker. Yeah, right? <laughs> uh, you, you know, it wasn't to do with Lineker. Again, I go back to Steve Nicholl. Steve Nichol talks, I, I've talked a lot to him over the years and for the books, at uh, the 84 book as well, as well, about the mentality, the winner mentality. And what he said, is, and I, I was talking to him about this with Lester. And he said, he said it's hard to win for a second time. He said, winning for the first time is easier than repeating. He said, because what happens is everyone wants to buy you a drink. You know, everyone's patting you on the back. Kind of goes to your head. You can't help it a little bit. You know, it's, uh, no matter how grounded you are. He said, and he was look. He was in the dressing room with people who'd won before, People sort of serial winners. And that was passed down at Liverpool. So when it began to go to your head a little bit, you know, it would uh, say, someone will pull you aside. Hey, you, now. Focus. Um, when Everton had had such a period in the doldrums, they hadn't won the league since the the Candle team in 1970, and um, so it was a long period. They'd gone 15 years about winning the league, and when they won, there was such an outburst of joy. Um, you know, it's 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 hard not to let that get you, and um, they not only that they had to deal with the, the ramifications of Heisel, There was a lot going on, and and they still, I mean, you know, it, it was close. It was, I mean, the margins this year between Liverpool doing the double and Everton doing the double was so small as to be wafer thin. The um, the but Liverpool had done it before. They knew how to win, and there was a, a relentlessness about them. Everton were the better side. But Liverpool just knew how to win, and they dragged themselves over the line. In a way, Everton come back the next year, of course, and won again. They, you know, they the they they, they used the the defeat to to win the title again. But that's another story. Now, Levin Lerner- Evertonian writes about that.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, I mean, and now uh, you know Everton would uh, dream of you know going every fifteen years with the title. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, they haven't won uh, since that '87 team, so um mm. uh, or at least you know the Premier League no, yeah yeah uh, it's
2: uh well no it's been a a, a troubled time for the I mean, you know, it's uh, 95 since he last won the cup long time too long for a club like Everton.
1: yeah exactly and but was was there a turning point uh or when when you talk to you know the players was there a turning point uh for either Liverpool or everton that really stuck out as that's when they won the season or
2: there, there, there were uh, there were quite a few turning points in in a sense. Uh, I think for Liverpool, there was an away game at Tottenham, and uh, on the Sunday, and the weather was appalling. It was really it was a cold winter. Lots of games got called off, and there was a big fixture backlog. And uh, we, we we played we played there against Tottenham, and it was a grim day. It was one of the coldest I've ever been. And um, and I spent a winter in New York, so it's yeah. uh, it was it was it was it was icy, and we weren't playing well on the pitch. We give away a goal early on, then come back and equalise. But looks as if it was a draw, and um, and then sort of very very late on, Ian Rush got, got on the end of a, a, a sort of a through ball from the midfield and went through and scored, and that for Liverpool I think was really really crucial. It was at the moment where you. go you're just about to write off the title and go, ah, well, you know what, yeah, they've won it again, right, next year. Let's think about next year. And then, boom, the surge of belief. And that, that was, a, you know, they, they they all talk about that day. And, of course, for, for, for Everton, uh, there was that uh, awful last week for them. Um, it was, it, Oxford Oxford was the, 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 the night for them where the. We were playing at uh, Leicester, and they were playing Oxford. Both teams fighting relegation. We kicked off 15 minutes earlier, and we're, we're 2-0 up, you know, sort of, early on. And, um, and then Evan c- couldn't score. Gary Lineker famously left us, us boots at Goodison um, and, uh, and had to wear new boots. And that that you know, sort of, he he blamed that afterwards. Uh, uh, but they 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 had a very bad night in front of goal that night, and Oxford beat them with a very late goal, and that was that was a killer blow for them. Um, they, I mean, they had a lot of injuries too. They, you know, sort of Reedy was out for a long period of the year. Derek Mountfield, who was one of the great uh, underrated centre halves. You know, he, the year before when they won the league, centre half he scored he scored ten goals. You know, it's, um, it's you know, which for, is just ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he had a hat trick. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh,
1: you know, uh, that's I mean, almost unheard of these days.
2: So cool. you know, I mean, uh, they, they 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 lost good players, but I think um, yeah, the, 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 there were moments. I mean, uh, when you, when you look at those sort of um, runs at the end of the season, there was um, Liverpool had twelve games left and they were uh, ten points behind Everton, and um, they, they after the derby and they went to the dressing room and um, Malby said yeah Malby said he said they said okay there's 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 36 points left you know we we've you know we can get 36 points that's all we can do get 36 points He our oh, well we didn't get 36 said, uh, you know we only got 34 you know what <laughs> a run and you look at Everton's run and under normal circumstances you'd say it's a brilliant it's a brilliant finish to the league i mean you know they they lost at luton but i i mean they, they, they still won the vast majority of the games, had, you know, a couple of draws and um, and, and lost one in the same run. It was just that Liverpool put together a, a, a phenomenal, you know, sort of stretch of games, which, I mean, it, it's... Given that this was a side in transition with a first-year manager in Kenny Dalglish, it... it Looking back, the more I read about it, the more I couldn't believe it. But again, going back to Steve Nichol, saying the winner mentality, I'd grown up obviously watching Liverpool, and there was a there was a sense of. No, we're going to win the league because I don't think until that night at Leicester, the penultimate game of the, the league season, we actually thought we were going to win the league. But you know, we always thought you know what? it'll be closer than it looks. It'll be closer than it looks.
1: Yeah. N- now that you mention it. Uh... When you were going back and you know reading all these countless articles and books and whatnot about the events, is there anything that you know surprised you? I mean, since you lived through it, was there anything that like really was like, "Huh, I didn't even realize that." Like,
2: um, I think the the the, uh, the the consistency and how good the teams were in the backlog of games and the small number of players they used, which you took for granted then, and now you're like whoa, we do not near a squad rotation. And everyone's like, oh, oh, we need a winter break, we play too much, you know, and all that. You know, these boys were, these these boys, the workload they had was unbelievable. There was, um, I was looking at um, some of the months in, in March and April, and I think um, something like, in in April, I think Chelsea played once every three days. You know, it's unbelievable. And that, that's what really shocked me, because I'd forgotten about it. Because they had this full members cup, which uh, was the creation largely of Ken Bates and, um, and Ron Nodes, Crystal Palace as chairman. And they created this full members' cup. No one went to watch it. It was a joke. But uh, on the Saturday, Chelsea played, and they were still in contention for the league. They, they were in, still in contention for the title. They, on the Saturday, they played Southampton away. So, you know, it's a uh, played Southampton away. And on the Sunday, they played the full members' cup final against Man City, which they won. Five four and then a, a, a ridiculous game of you know sort of, but they played two games in two days and then you know I mean, and I've I've forgotten about that and I've forgotten how ludicrous it was, and they they went and they, they lost they got got beat shortly after by West Ham and then they got stuffed by um, QPR and you know and that was the end of their title ambitions, but you know it's um they they. they going into the last six weeks of the season, last month of the season, they still had the possibility of winning the title and they they, they kind of give up that possibility to play a full Members' Cup final.
1: That's incredible. And back-to-back days. What is this, like, you know, seven, seven-year-old, seven like, youth tournaments? Come on. <laughs> um, well, uh, you know, we'll, we'll save the 86 final for people that want to read your book. Uh, you have uh, some memories of that, which I found very interesting. But uh, a couple uh, quotes that um, really uh really interests me uh, interest me as well. Uh one at the end of the book you said, quote the city, the club, the supporters have changed. It has not been for the better. Uh can you explain why you don't think so?
2: I think the uh the the, the city has changed considerably. Um it's become more of an English city. It was very um very sort of still Culturally Celtic back in the 80s, and uh, it's you know, it's people have forgotten the city's roots to Ireland. There's a whole generation growing up who, not, not all of them, but too many of them think they're Englishmen. Well scouts stop it um and it, it's it's also changed physically and I mean I see that because I've lived to you know sort of going home sort of living away and going home for so long it, what, what's changed about it, it was it, you always knew you're in Liverpool and now it's it, it's you're going to this like the, the Liverpool one shopping center. And you could be anywhere in the world, you know. A lot of the restaurants, you, you could be in Tokyo or New York. Um, the, the sense of, uh, of being Liverpool, um, uh, it doesn't feel like it once. That, that's only because I'm old and because I remember it a different way. To the kids now, they'll they'll see it as, as you know, that, that, it, sort of there now will be my nineteen seventies and eighties. So it's um, so I suppose it's a bit childish, but I think it's changed. I think it's. Uh, Probably when I wrote that, I uh, was it, it was written a couple of years ago. Uh, I've been gratified since to see a growing... the 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 politics is developing again amongst the young people. There was I mean the, the I took a lot in the book about the militant council and um and the uh, the sort of up to that the they they got voted on a platform of jobs and services. And they continued to do that. And when the government took money off them each time and moved the goalposts, they still managed to to, uh, to outmanoeuvre them until essentially, the, 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 the Thatcher government made sure that they, they were in a position where they couldn't do it anymore and, and, and rate capped them and suspended the... Sen- uh, and fined the councillors. and It was a scandal. Essentially, they threw democracy out the window to suit themselves. And what that did, that alienated a whole generation of people. For example, I left the Labour Party at that time and never went back when Neil Kinnock stood up and slaughtered Liverpool City Council for opposing for opposing the cuts in Thatcherism that were were. Um that, that that were you know sort of leaving people in a terrible state. I mean, where where I lived, I mean, I'm from, uh, I'm from Berlington Street in Liverpool, three between Scotland and Vauxhall Roads. We we lived in tenements that were de- deteriorating into slums. The city council knocked them down and built semi-detached houses for people with gardens. People around us, people from our backgrounds, had never had anything like that. And what they did was amazing. And um, and you know, and the Labour Party, the Labour Party treated that as if they they. They were doing something bad, wrong, as if they were the enemy within uh, you know, within the party, and, and that was mad. And so it, it created a vacuum where the next generation of sort of kids didn't... There was, there was a lot of engagement in politics when I was young. Everyone from 16 to 25 seemed to have even if it was only a really loose, certainly going to match and the people I knew, even if it was only a loose interest in politics and a uh, the, the loosest support for uh, sort of socialist politics. They, they had that, which kind of, especially in the early 2000s, it felt like that was eroding in Liverpool. And um, I'm gratified to see, excuse me, over the last couple of years, it's been growing again. So... So maybe I'm a, a bit harsh. I, what I was thinking there is the relationship between Liverpool and Everton fans, which has grown uh, grown increasingly toxic over the, the years. I mean, one of the things about the the day at Wembley, as I say, the eyes of the world were on Wembley because he had 100,000 scousers in there. These are the people who were supposed to get drunk, run amok, steal everything, kill people, right? And what they saw was a... a, a Uh, a sort of an expression of solidarity that's unparalleled in football as as far as i know you know hardly ever any everton fans left the the stadium after they got beat the whole place was ringing with the chant of merseyside and it's like now you wouldn't get that The the, it's grown toxic well that was going to be my
1: final question um because when i was reading the book i couldn't help but draw the parallels to today in manchester um you know you have at, at the time in the 80s of course Liverpool Everton the two top clubs in mm. the league today uh, at least on the in the table as of today on fe- mm. uh, February 27th the top two teams in the table and at least in terms of spending money Manchester United and Man City and my final uh, thought was it didn't seem like that sort of solidarity would exist today mm. and that that I mean, I, you talk about after the final, um, you know, the lack of the quote you have is the lack of anger from the losing fans was startling because oh, yeah, it yeah. wasn't startling as in like it didn't all kick off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, so I, today, I mean, can you draw a comparison between Manchester and Liverpool of thirty years ago?
2: No, I don't think there would be any unity from uh, the, the, those both sides of Manchester. I, I think um, I think that there is. Um and I'm not even sure there would have been back in the 80s between them the, the way it was between Liverpool, Everton. And I think it was because of the particular circumstances of Liverpool. You know, Liverpool was such an outcast city. It's hard now to to uh, see this when you know when you read in um, all these papers, uh, you know, about sort of, you know places you could go, you know, ten ten places, ten best places in the world to go, you know, and when I mean, you see Liverpool regularly in that list, you know, stag parties and hem parties from all over um, all over the you know so sort of, Britain. Sometimes Europe. Go there. It's it's a destination where people want to go to. And um, I mean, in, in the uh, the the Observer did a piece in the early eighties where it was, followed Orwell's road to Wigan Pier. Again, you know. So, uh, and and they were talking to a resident, I always remember a resident of Wigan. and and they were talking about Liverpool and they said they should build a Berlin Wall around Liverpool and not let any any of the scousers out and that's the way people looked at Liverpool and so there was we, we, we were aware of our status as pariahs, I mean I tell you what coming down to London and trying to spend a £20 note in London being a young scouser in those days, it was like, it was unbelievable. The, the shopkeeper would be holding us up to the light and scrutinising it. It got to the point, or the, the, more likely the pub landlords, That's got to the point, you were going, just give me a back. You know, they, they assumed you were a thief. I remember going for jobs. I went for a job. And um, and obviously they hadn't read my CV thoroughly enough. You know, of. So I went and shook hands with the, the fella and he said, oh, nice to meet you. Yeah, I'm yeah, really impressed with your CV. I said, oh, well, thank you. And as I spoke, I saw the look on his eyes, you know, he's like, oh, scouser," you know, don't want them. Mm-hmm. It's um and 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 the the, the accents, you know, it's it's it, it was criminalised, and so which I don't think has ever happened to the Manchester accents, not the same way, and you know it all takes back. It goes in the book. The, the the roots of this is the anti-Irishness, you know, that goes back way back. Um, but so the, the, I don't think any other city had quite the uh was quite as alienated, and the one thing that unified us was the alienation. So even if we were, on, I mean, Liverpool, unusual in England because, again, in the 80s, when time was talking about, you know, so the splits along religious lines were deeper. The Orange Lodge marched in the city. You know, around July the 12th was always a very fractious time. You know, the the problems of Northern Ireland and Glasgow were replicated on a smaller scale in Liverpool. So, you know, there was the religious divide and uh, which... Thankfully never affected the football clubs. But you know, you, so you you, 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 you uh, the, the word divides. But what what drew us all together was how alienated we were, how much how, how much we felt outsiders in England, in Britain. In the United Kingdom, and how much we felt. I remember doing the the um, the minor strikes gigs with the bands uh, to support the miners, and when Margaret Thatcher called them the enemy within, it struck them to the core. You know, these were Yorkshiremen; they saw themselves as England's backbone, and. It, being called the enemy within it really uh, affected their whole sense of self with us we're called the enemy within we're made up yeah we are dead right we are and that unified us and at Wembley I think, and there was no, there was no leaflets went round. No one said to the Evertonians, you know, oh, we got to put on a show of unity. We got to show, put a show on strength. It was spontaneous. It just happened. They instinctively knew, as a group of people, a massive group of people, more than hundred. I'd probably say, in my estimate, there would be probably one hundred and twenty thousand people in Wembley that day. You know, it's, um, um it, it it was packed. All these people knew just instinctively and emotionally that what was needed was to put on our best face for the world to show them that no matter what they think we weren't the vermin they believed we were we weren't killers we weren't we you know sort of we we weren't you know sort of these rabid monsters that we were being portrayed in the press and you know it's all in the book that the, 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 the press cuttings from the you know sort of the things they said about us uh, uh, you know it's i mean unbelievable really uh, the, the classic demonization of your enemy you know taking the humanity away from us well you know what on that day it was a football match and there was a huge expression of our shared uh, uh, our shared culture our shared beliefs and our shared humanity and no matter what the world would thought of us we were going to show them that we weren't like that we were just normal people, and that's what Wembley was about, and I look back on it now, and I, I look back and I wonder myself, if I'd have been on the receiving end as a Liverpool fan, would I have been so magnanimous as the Evertonians were? Um, I'd like to think so, but they, I mean, it's, and I think Evertonians might not want to read this book, I think I mean, uh, 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 Oliver K from the um, the Times, good, good friends of mine, read one of the early versions of it, and he came back to me. And he said, um, "He said to, it sounds to me like you're an Everton fan after reading this, and I think the heroes of this book, in many ways, are Everton and the fans, the the, the people who lost, but not only lost with dignity, lost in a manner that restored, restored the the." Um, the the dignity of a city and which confounded those who would only see us as left-wing agitators who were capable who who would kill people over a football match and you know what shangli Shankly's life and death statement is always taken out of context. It was a joke and it became his party piece. He never thought it was a matter of life or death football because he was too human and too too good a human to, to do that. But you know what? That day at Wembley, it was shown that wasn't a matter of life or death. And what was more important was our friends, our neighbours, our city and the Everton fans put in a put in a show of defiance and strength that is truly remarkable and not just in football in life overall
1: if you want to hear and see more or if you want to see more details see some more beautiful press clippings if you want to just read more about it go check out the book two tribes Uh, i mean the passion you can hear it in his voice It, it comes through in the book So go buy that. Tony Evans, thanks for stopping by and chatting.
2: A pleasure.